You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. I invite you to open your Bibles to Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38, as we continue our series through the book of Job, which is coming to an end soon. Uh, I anticipate that we will have two more sermons in Job. Uh, We will finish this series on Labor Day weekend, and uh, then we'll go to a new series in the New Testament that is yet to be determined. Yes, I, I do not plan very far in advance. It has been 35 long chapters since the Lord last spoke in this book. 35 chapters since the Lord said to Satan in chapter 2, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. The 35 chapters since then have worked out the implications of those words. As Job has experienced intense anguish, over the suffering brought to him by the hand of God. And it's been filled with debate as God's finest servant struggled to understand why he was treated like God's worst enemy. The main question in those 35 chapters has been the question that everyone who has ever suffered deeply has asked. Why? Why? Why did God do this? Why did this happen to me? Why do the righteous suffer so much? Why don't we see justice in the world? Job has asked this question, why, in various ways throughout this book. In Job chapter 3, he asks, Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb, and expire Chapter 7, why have I become a burden to you, that is God? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? Chapter 13, why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Chapter 21, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Chapter 24, why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty, and why do those who know him never see his days? Job has asked the question on the tongue of everyone who has suffered, why? And he has received no answer, no answer from God, and that has caused him tremendous pain. In chapter 30, verse 20, he says, I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. But here, finally, in chapter 38, God answers Job. God may have been silent, but he has been listening patiently to every word that Job has spoken, every question that Job has asked. But as God prepares to speak, he needs to set the record straight. He has been listening patiently like a father with his upset Son, listening and waiting with compassion as Job has vented his frustration and anger. But now that Job is done speaking, it is time for daddy to set the record straight. 
God will answer his suffering servant, but as he does, he doesn't give Job the answers that he was looking for. He doesn't answer the question, why? Instead, he responds with a series of his own questions, not for himself, but for Job. Job has been asking why, but God challenges him to begin asking who. Rather than why have I suffered, he should be asking who has done this? Job, do you know who you're talking to? Job, do you know who I am? Job, do you understand who it is that has ordained this course of life for you. Derek Kidner insightfully writes, God has changed the subject. All the obsessive talk about Job's plight as punitive is left completely on one side. The inference could hardly be plainer that Job and his friends have not only found the wrong answers, they have been asking the wrong questions. And my friends, that is why these chapters are so instructive for us. They not only teach us the right answers, they teach us the right questions. When we go through a time of suffering, it will be instinctual of us to ask why. That is inevitable. And part of the reason why God has put the book of Job in his word is to tell us that it's okay to ask why. But ultimately, if we are to find peace, And if we are to endure through our suffering, we must learn to ask and answer the question, who? Who is God? Who is God even in the dark day of my suffering? And so the title of this sermon is The Right Questions for the Righteous Sufferer. The Right Questions for the Righteous Sufferer. We're gonna divide our text into three parts. First, the whirlwind. Second, the world. And third, the wild. Let's begin with the whirlwind. Verse one in chapter 38 begins, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. This is the first time since chapter two that God has been referred by his covenant name, the Lord. Job and his friends have referred to God by his more generic name, God. God the creator, God the almighty. But, but as this God speaks, we are reminded that he isn't just God. He is the Lord. When you see the word the Lord in capital letters, it signifies that the word there is Yahweh. Yahweh, the God of covenant faithfulness. The God who makes promises to his people and keeps them. This is the personal name of God. And it reminds Job that the God of creation is not only the God of all things, he is the God of Job. And he will care for Job as his God. Verse 1 continues and says that the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Out of the whirlwind. We must try to imagine what this must have looked like. There's Job sitting on the ash heap at the town dump where garbage and waste is burned. And he's sitting there on top of the ashes. He hasn't washed in weeks. He is dirty and he is smelly. His body is covered with boils from 
the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Children come by and laugh at him. He has become amusement and entertainment for bystanders. His friends are fed up with him. Young Elihu the prophet is angry with him. But all of a sudden, the sky grows dark, and clouds swirl overhead. Thunder rumbles in the distance, and the wind begins whipping all that ash up into swirls and swirls. And people are taking cover in the streets, wondering if this tornado is going to rip up their homes and cause destruction in their city. And that is when God speaks to Job. That is when God finally answers his questioning servant. God has done this before. This isn't the first time that God has spoken in the midst of a violent storm. It was on Mount Sinai, that great mountain of God where the law of God was given to God's people, where we are told in Exodus 19, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Job would have trembled as well, not just because he has read about what destruction tornadoes and whirlwinds can bring, but because it was a whirlwind that caused the death of his 10 children. Do you remember in chapter one, it said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, A great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead and I alone have escaped to tell you. My friends, unless you live in Barrie, you probably do not understand the danger and destruction that can be caused by a whirlwind. But Job understood In chapter 30, he actually compared his pain and suffering to being tossed to and fro in a whirlwind. He says in chapter 30, verse 22, you lift me up on the wind, you make me ride on it, and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. Job is terrified of the storm. He's living in the storm, and yet here, God speaks to him out of the storm. That may seem harsh or cruel to some, that God is re-traumatizing him, but it is not. We see both the kindness and the severity of God on display here, because even though God speaks to him in the thunder and lightning and danger and destruction of the whirlwind, God does not consume him from within it. God doesn't lift him up and actually dash him to pieces like Job described God as doing to him. God speaks to him out of the whirlwind. God is reminding Job of both his might and his mercy. As Job stands before this catastrophic force of nature that has already caused him so much depression and sadness, and he lives. Job lives. Out of the whirlwind come these words. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. God's first question to Job is this. Who are you? 
Who are you? Who are you to darken the counsel of God with words without knowledge? I mean, that is what Job has done. Job has, speaking, Job has spoken in ignorance and he has darkened the counsel and wisdom of God that governs the world and now he must give an account for what he has said. This God that he has questioned actually exists and he actually hears every word that comes out of his mouth and he will hold him to account for those words and he calls him to dress for action like a man because he is about to be summoned before the courtroom of God. The questioner has become the questioned. The accuser on the stand has become the witness on the stand as God says, I will question you and you make it known to me. To be questioned by God is a terrifying prospect, but here it is an act of kindness because God asks questions that teach Job and instruct Job and reveal to Job who God truly is and who Job truly is so that Job would once again put his trust in this holy God. Right now I'm reading a biography on the late pastor and theologian R.C. Sproul. He was once asked, what is his greatest burden for the church? In reply, he said, I am passionately convinced that the biggest need of the church is to develop a deeper understanding of the character of God. People need to know cognitively and intellectually, and we might add emotionally, who God is. We need to know who God is. We can talk so much about the love of God that we lose sight of the holiness of God, that that we can presume to enter into his presence without fear and trembling. One of the lasting legacies of Dr. Sproul is his classic sermon on the holiness of God that, that he ended up expanding into a book. And he points out in his sermon that the one quality of God described in the Bible in a threefold manner, is his holiness. Do you remember Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphim surrounding the throne of God as the train of his robe fills the temple, and they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is filled with his glory. My friends, we must never presume to approach God in a comfortable and presumptuous manner. Instead, we must approach God with fear and trembling, remembering constantly that the only reason why we can approach God and not be consumed by the whirlwind of his wrath is because of the great mercy of God shown to us in the sacrifice of his son. That is why we pray in Jesus' name. We come to God not in our own name, not on the basis of our own righteousness or the merits of our own good works. We come in Jesus' name, pleading his blood, his merits, his righteousness, because only he could make a way for sinful men and women to approach a holy God. As God's questions begin, we see God take Job on a tour 
through time and space. He leads Job to consider the wisdom with which God founded the world and sustains it with today. And this leads us to our second point, the world. In verses four to seven, the Lord asks this. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? My kids have gone through a long season of being fascinated by the solar system. I know that's not just true of our kids, but of many kids. We we watch videos and documentaries and YouTube videos about the beauty and wonder and mystery of space. And unfailingly, those who comment on the earth say, wow, look at this beautiful blue marble soaring through space. This random happy accident that has been the the home of human beings like us. Aren't we glad that evolution created this big blue ball. Well, Job tells us, and God tells us in chapter 38, that this is not just a random blue marble zooming through space. The earth is God's building project. God laid its foundation. God determined its measurements. God placed the pillars in place. God laid its cornerstones. And when he was done, all the heavenly hosts burst out in joyful song and worship. Listen, at the creation of the world, there was a soundtrack blaring. There was a soundtrack blaring, and it was a soundtrack of joy. As the angels celebrated what God had made, and God asks Job, and he asks everyone who would accuse God of injustice, he asks, where were you, Job? Were you there? Were you at that birthday bash for the earth? The answer, of course, was no. I mean, Job didn't exist. He wasn't even a flicker in his mother's eye. I mean, humanity did not exist. But God was there, and God was building. God was building with wisdom and with joy so that all the earth could be filled with his glory. The questions continue in verses 8 to 11. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. God is bringing Job's attention to the third day of creation when God created the waters of the earth and separated them from the the dry land like a master craftsman, like a planner, not just of cities, but of planets. God was creating islands and continents and pools the size of oceans and separating them with borders and limits. And now he asked Job, Job, were you there? Job, were you there when I created all of that? There's a deeper meaning behind these verses as well. The Bible often uses the sea as a symbol of chaos, disorder, and evil. If you read through the book of Revelation, 
near the end in chapter 21, as, as John is envisioning the new heavens and the new earth, you can look there, he says, and the sea was no more. There was no sea because there was no evil. And the sea, as beautiful as it is, it is a fitting image for chaos and disorder that, that infiltrates and disrupts and devastates our lives. The crashing waves and the wild currents seem to have a life of their own. But God says in these verses that it is all under his sovereign rule. Verse 9 actually says, he made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. What do you swaddle? Who do you swaddle? You swaddle babies. This is a picture of a father tending his infant child. That is what chaos and disorder and evil are to God. They are no more able to revolt against God and exceed the limits that he has set than a baby towards its parents. That is precisely what God did when he set limits on what Satan could do. Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. Behold, he is in your hand, but do not touch his body. Satan was no more able to exceed those limits than my one-year-old son, Owen, could organize a revolt in my household. God is completely and absolutely sovereign and no force of evil or power of darkness can challenge him. The Lord continues with more creation imagery to illustrate his sovereignty in verses 12 to 13. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? God commands the morning. The, the morning obeys his voice. He awakens the dawn. Morning by morning, the sun rises by God's command. And this is meant to remind us that justice is coming. Light is biblical imagery for many things, for, for truth, for healing, but also for perfect justice and righteousness. The day of justice will come. As certainly as the sunrise and every new day we see is a reminder that that justice is coming. And now God asks Job, can, can you do that? Does the sun listen to your voice? Job is as powerless to create a world of justice as he is to make the sun rise. So who is he to question God's justice? God's challenges continue in verses 16 to 18. God asks if Job has stood before the gates of death. Well, no, he hasn't. Verses 19 to 21, God asks if Job knows the dwelling place of light and darkness. No, but God does. In verses 22 to 30, God asks if Job knows, if Job possesses the wisdom that he needs to govern the precipitation of the world. So they can either bring destruction when it falls as snow and hail, or it can bring life when it falls as rain. The answer, no. But God does. In verses 31 to 33, God asks Job if he has power to to control the constellations, the billions of stars in the night sky that seem to form 
pictures of hunters and drinking gourds and bears in the night sky. Can, can he control that? Can he bring them in and, and loose them? No. But God does. God rules all things from the stars in the sky to the rain that falls to the ground. Or as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. That is God's tour of the world. And now he takes Job and he takes the readers on a tour of the wild, leading to our final point. You may recall in chapter one that Job is a man who was well familiar with animals. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He was used to having animals around. He knew what to do with animals. But God has a different kind of animal in mind that he wants to show to Job. Job's animals were all domesticated. They, they lived and fed and bred in orderly pens, tended by Job's faithful servants. God wants to take Job out of those nice and neat animal pens and bring him out into the wilderness where he can observe animals in their natural habitat. The first safari ride, you could say, is God taking Job on this tour to see that where the wild animals are, God is there and God is at work. Verses 39 to 41, note the personal language here. God is speaking and he asks, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Once again, the answer is not Job, but God. God does that. God doesn't just create these animals and leave them to fend for themselves. He is so involved in his creation that he can describe himself as seeking the prey for the young lions. When the young ravens cry out in their nests for their parents to feed them, they're actually crying out to God. And God, in his fatherly care, feeds even the smallest birds. Next up, the mountain goats in chapter 39. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth, Job? Do you observe the calving of the does? Of course not, but God does. God is there numbering the months of the mother goat's pregnancy and observing as the young goats are born and then they struggle to walk and they grow stronger and they eventually leave home. God is there among the wild mountain goats. God is there and he is at work. God is there delighting in the wild donkey, which is our next animal in verses five to eight. This is a creature. Listen, if you've ever seen a donkey, I haven't spent much time with donkeys, but 
if you have seen a donkey, this is an animal that demonstrates both the wisdom of God and the humor of God. In in God's wisdom, this wild donkey is described in verse 6 as living in the most unlikely of places, the arid plain and the salt land. This wild donkey lives in places that do not cultivate life. But that is where the wild donkey prances and dances and thrives. And in God's humor, listen to this, the wild donkey, this this creature has some attitude. Verse 7 says, he scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture. And he searches after every green thing. Listen, this wild donkey doesn't just mope around like Eeyore. No, this wild donkey exalts in its freedom. It looks in the cities. It looks at its domesticated brethren and says, ha, better you than me. No one is domesticating this wild donkey anytime soon. It will roam the mountains free as it searches for every green thing. Next up is the wild ox in verses 9 to 12. A beast Job des- God describes as too powerful for man to tame. It's as if God is saying, the wild ox will not serve you, but it will serve me. It, it will not return your grain if you set it to work, but it obeys every single one of my commands. And now comes my personal favorite, the ostrich. The ostrich, when I became a minister of God's word, I never thought I'd be teaching you about ostriches. But verse 13 says, the wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? If you've been to an ostrich farm or watched one of those funny videos on YouTube, you know that ostriches have impressive wings. They, they flap them when they see predators They flap them in their courtship dances, but they do not flap them in order to fly because their wings do not work. They do not do what wings are meant to do. Wings are given by God to to enable creatures to fly. But the ostrich cannot fly. God wants Job to know that this was not an accident This was not an evolutionary mistake. Even the wings of the ostrich wave proudly without bringing that ostrich into the air by the design of God. Nor is it an accident that the ostrich is a terrible mother. Verses 14 to 15 say, for she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. I mean, that's the ostrich for you. Flapping its wings without flying and laying eggs where they can be crushed. Its wings don't work, and it appears that its brain doesn't work that well either. But that wasn't an accident. Verse 17 says that she is like this because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. If we see silly creatures in the wild, like the poor, silly ostrich, lacking in wisdom, it is because God has ordained it to be so. 
But the ostrich can do one thing well. One thing. She can run really fast. Verse 18, when she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. That is what God has made. That is what God has designed. He has designed and created a bird that can't fly, but that can run faster than a horse. I mean, we we shouldn't be talking about horsepower. We should be talking about ostrich power. You know, how much ostrich power does your car have? I mean, my, my, your car may have 200 horsepower, but my car has 150 ostrich power. And when the ostrich runs, it laughs at the horse. That is what God has made. Speaking of horses, God leads Job to consider them next in verses 19 to 25. If you're a horse lover, you can relate to these verses. This mighty beast is described as the nuclear weapon of ancient warfare because it revolutionized how people fought. No longer would they just stand in orderly lines and crash into each other, but they would circle each other and create maneuvers and they would charge the line with, uh, with soldiers on the backs of these fearsome beasts. And God says, did man give the horse its strength or give the horse its beauty? No, of course, but God did. God did. Lastly, the hawk and the eagle in verses 26 to 30. God reminds Job that as these birds of prey circle the sky, as they look out for their prey, and as they bring their prey back to their young, waiting in their nests, they do not do that just by instinct. They do so by the understanding and by the command of God. Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? Of course not, not the command of man, but the command of God. In summary, as we conclude this tour of the wild, God's point is that everything in the world and everything in the wild is the way it is because of the God who speaks out of the whirlwind. Everything from the silly ostrich to the noble eagle. And now in light of God's immense knowledge and wisdom, his sovereign rule over leaf and blade, rain and drought, God asked Job one more question. And the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Chapter after chapter, Job has found fault with God. He has accused God of injustice, of doing wrong, of governing the universe in a substandard way. And Job is saying, God, if I were you, I would have done things a little differently. But no longer does Job find fault with the Almighty. After this tour through space and time, Job's response is exemplary. For all of us, he says, then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. 
I have spoken once and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. My friends, that is how we are meant to respond to these verses in Holy Scripture. We should say, I am of small account. In a world that is obsessed with inflating your ego and building up your self-esteem and telling you that you are the most important thing in this world, it turns out that the remedy we really need is to stand in awe and wonder at the presence of this holy God and feel small. Everything that we see around us is under the sovereign superintendence of God. So who are we? These men and women, boys and girls of small account, to think that we could ever fathom the mind of God. We are small, yes, but in the wonderful mercy of God, we are also precious. If you've read The Lord of the Rings, we are like the hobbits. We are of small account, but God calls us to do the greatest work of all. We who are small, weak, and limited are so precious to God that he did not spare his own son, the son who sang with joy along with the angels of heaven at the creation of the world, the son who sustains all of creation by the word of his power. He did not spare that son, but instead he sent that son to die on the cross for your sins and for my sins. It is only in the cross that we see both the smallness of mankind and the dignity of mankind. It was our sin that sent Jesus to the cross, but it was his love for us that made him willing to suffer. The world shows us that we are small, but the cross at the same time shows us that we are also infinitely valued and loved by the God who created it. And so we see that God has given us an incredible gift in these chapters of Job. Even as he calls us to look to the stars and to the wild animals, he also calls us to look to the wonderful cross. Because that is what will give us the grace that we need in the end to persevere through any hardship, trial, burden, and suffering we could ever experience in this lifetime. Derek Kidner helps us once again when he writes this, and this is so precious. He says, these words will reassure him that his maker is unimaginably wise and of infinite resource. But it will also bring it home to him that his ash heap is not the center or circumference of the world, and that his perplexing role is intertwined with that of innumerable others. Our friends, whatever you are experiencing, whatever burdens you bear, whether it is sickness, sorrow, or sin, you need to know that your ash heap is not the center or circumference of the world. Because this same sovereign God who spoke out of the whirlwind who sustains the world, who is there present in the wild, is the same God who watches over your life. He is doing far more than we know in the world. And he is doing far more than we know in our lives. 
And so when we suffer, it is inevitable that we will ask the question, why? And that is okay. But the more important question we need to ask is who? Who is the God who created the world? Who is the God who designed the silly ostrich? Who is this God who feeds the lions and instructs the eagles and commands the stars? Who is this God who sent his only son to die for sinners like us so that we could be forgiven and adopted as the very children of God? Brothers and sisters, God is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our obedience and he is worthy of our trust. So let us behold this God and worship. Let's pray. Father, we are of small account. And in the midst of our anguish and complaints and grievances, we want to lay our hands on our mouths and listen to the voice of God speaking to us out of the whirlwind that we might be freshly amazed at your power and freshly comforted by your mercy. We ask that you would do for Job, do for us what you did for Job in helping him to trust you again. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.